0: Hey everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. And know that you are welcome here regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast stands in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show are available. The link is in the show notes. This is it. The final episode of Jekyll and Hyde, the final episode of Long Form Year, and the final episode of 2021. Thank you all so much for coming along with me on this trip. I'm ever so grateful to each and every one of you who listens, and this year I broke the record for most downloads in a month, topping more than 30,000 in the month of October. I've published full readings of many long-form stories, some of which could possibly become audiobooks in the future, and I'm very shortly after the new year going to break 500,000 downloads. Thank you all so much. I hope you all enjoyed The Turn of the Screw, because God knows I didn't, And let's cut to the chase and thump this melon. Henry Jekyll's Full Statement of the Case I was born in the year 18 blank to a large fortune, endowed besides with excellent parts, inclined by nature to industry, fond of the respect of the wise and good among my fellow men, and thus, as might have been supposed, with every guarantee of an honorable and distinguished future. And indeed the worst of my faults was a certain impatient gaiety of disposition, such as made the happiness of many, but such as I found it hard to reconcile with my imperious desire to carry my head high and wear a more than commonly grave countenance before the public. Hence it came about that I concealed my pleasures, and that when I reached years of reflection and began to look round me and take stock of my progress and position in the world, I stood already committed to a profound duplicity of life. Many a man would have even blazoned such irregularities as I was guilty of, but from the high views that I had set before me, I regarded and hid them with an almost morbid sense of shame. It was thus rather the exacting nature of my aspirations than any particular degradation in my faults that made me what I was, and, with even a deeper trench than in the majority of men, severed in me those provinces of good and ill which divide and compound man's dual nature. In this case, I was driven to reflect deeply and inveterately on that hard law of life which lies at the root of religion and is one of the most plentiful springs of distress. Though so profound a double dealer, I was in no sense a hypocrite. Both sides of me were in dead earnest. I was no more myself when I laid aside restraint and plunged in shame than when I labored in the eye of day at the furtherance of knowledge or the relief of sorrow and suffering and it chanced that the direction of my scientific studies, which led wholly toward the mystic and transcendental, reacted and shed a strong light on this consciousness of the perennial war among my members. With every day, and from both sides of my intelligence, the moral and the intellectual, I thus drew steadily nearer to that truth by whose partial discovery I have been doomed to such a dreadful shipwreck, that man is not truly one, but truly two. I say two, because the state of my own knowledge does not pass beyond that point. Others will follow, others will outstrip me on the same lines, and I hazard the guess that man will be ultimately known for a mere polity of multifarious, incongruous, and independent denizens. I, for my part, from the nature of my life, advanced infallibly in one direction, and in one direction only. It was on the moral side, and in my own person, that I learned to recognize the thorough and primitive duality of man. I saw that, of the two natures that contended in the field of my consciousness, even if I could rightly be said to be either, it was only because I was radically both, and from an early date, even before the course of my scientific discoveries had begun to suggest the most naked possibility of such a miracle, I learned to dwell with pleasure, as a beloved daydream, on the thought of the separation of these elements." If each, I told myself, could be housed in separate identities, life would be relieved of all that was unbearable. The unjust might go his way, delivered from the aspirations and remorse of his more upright twin, and the just could walk steadfastly and securely on his upward path, doing the good things in which he found his pleasure, and no longer exposed to disgrace and penitence by the hands of his extraneous evil. It was the curse of mankind that these incongruous faggots were thus bound together, that in the agonized womb of consciousness these polar twins should be continuously struggling. How then were they dissociated? I was so far in my reflections when, as I have said, a sidelight began to shine upon the subject from the laboratory table. I began to perceive more deeply than it has ever yet been stated the trembling immateriality, the mist-like transience of this Seemingly so solid body in which we walk attired. Certain agents I found to have the power to shake and pluck back that fleshly vestment, even as a wind might toss the curtains of a pavilion. For two good reasons, I will not enter deeply into the scientific branch of my confession. First, because I have been made to learn that the doom and burden of our life is bound forever on man's shoulders, and when the attempt is made to cast it off, it but returns upon us with more unfamiliar and more awful pressure. Second, because, as my narrative will make, alas, too evident, my discoveries were incomplete. Enough, then, that I not only recognized my natural body from the mere aura and effulgence of certain of the powers that made up my spirit, but managed to compound a drug by which these powers should be dethroned from their supremacy, and a second form and countenance substituted, None the less natural to me because they were the expression and bore the stamp of lower elements in my soul." I hesitated long before I put this theory to the test of practice. I knew well that I risked death, for any drug that so potently controlled and shook the very fortress of identity might, by the least scruple of an overdose, or at the least inopportunity in the moment of exhibition, utterly blot out that immaterial tabernacle which I looked to it to change. But the temptation of a discovery so singular and profound at last overcame the suggestions of alarm. I had long since prepared my tincture. I purchased at once from a firm of wholesale chemists a large quantity of a particular salt, which I knew from my experiments to be the last ingredient required. And late one accursed night I compounded the elements, watched them boil and smoke together in the glass, and when the ebullition had subsided, with a strong glow of courage, drank off the potion. The most racking pains succeeded a grinding in the bones, deadly nausea, and a horror of the spirit that cannot be exceeded at the hour of birth or death. Then these agonies began swiftly to subside, and I came to myself as if out of a great sickness. There was something strange in my sensations, something indescribably new, and from its very novelty incredibly sweet. I felt younger, lighter, happier in body. Within I was conscious of a heady recklessness, a current of disordered sensual images running like a mill-race in my fancy, a solution of the bonds of obligation, an unknown but not an innocent freedom of the soul. I knew myself, at the first breath of this new life, to be more wicked, tenfold more wicked, sold a slave to my original evil, and the thought, in that moment, braced and delighted me like wine. I stretched out my hands exulting in the freshness of these sensations, and in the act I was suddenly aware that I had lost in stature. There was no mirror at that date in my room. That which stands before me as I write was brought there later on, and for the very purpose of these transformations. The night, however, was far gone into the morning. The morning, black as it was, was nearly ripe for the conception of the day. The inmates of my house were locked in the most rigorous hours of slumber, and I determined, flushed as I was with hope and triumph, to venture in my new shape as far as to my bedroom. I crossed the yard, wherein the constellations looked down upon me, I could have thought with wonder, the first creature of that sort that their unsleeping vigilance had yet disclosed to them. I stole through the corridors, a stranger in my own house, and coming to my room, I saw for the first time the appearance of Edward Hyde. I must here speak by theory alone, saying not that which I know, but that which I suppose to be most probable. The evil side of my nature, to which I had now transferred the stamping efficacy, was less robust and less developed than the good which I had just deposed. Again, in the course of my life, which had been, after all, nine-tenths a life of effort, virtue, and control, it had been much less exercised and much less exhausted, and hence, as I think, it came about that Edward Hyde was so much smaller." "'slighter and younger than Henry Jekyll. "'Even as good shone upon the countenance of the one, "'evil was written broadly and plainly "'on the face of the other. "'Evil besides, which I must still believe "'to be the lethal side of man, "'had left on that body an imprint of deformity and decay. "'And yet when I looked upon that ugly idol in the glass, "'I was conscious of no repugnance, "'rather of a leap of welcome. "'This, too, was myself.' it seemed natural and human. In my eyes it bore a livelier image of the spirit. It seemed more express and single than the imperfect and divided countenance I had been hitherto accustomed to call mine, and in so far I was doubtless right. I have observed that when I wore the semblance of Edward Hyde, none could come near to me at first without a visible misgiving of the flesh. This, as I take it, was because all humans, as we meet them, are commingled out of good and evil, and Edward Hyde, alone in the ranks of mankind, was pure evil. I lingered but a moment at the mirror. The second and conclusive experiment had yet to be attempted. It yet remained to be seen if I had lost my identity beyond redemption and must flee before daylight from a house that was no longer mine. And hurrying back to my cabinet, I once more prepared and drank the cup, once more suffered the pangs of dissolution, and came to myself once more with the character, the stature, and the face of Henry Jekyll. That night I had come to the fatal crossroads. Had I approached my discovery in a more noble spirit, had I risked the experiment while under the empire of generous or pious aspirations, all must have been otherwise, and from these agonies of death and birth I had come forth an angel instead of a fiend. The drug had no discriminating action, it was neither diabolical nor divine, it but shook the doors of the prison-house of my disposition, and like the captives of Philippi, that which stood within ran forth. At that time my virtue slumbered. My evil, kept awake by ambition, was alert and swift to seize the occasion, and the thing that was projected was Edward Hyde. Hence, although I had now two characters as well as two appearances, One was wholly evil, and the other was still the old Henry Jekyll, that incongruous compound of whose reformation and improvement I had already learned to despair. The movement was thus wholly toward the worse. Even at that time I had not conquered my aversions to the dryness of a life of study. I would still be merrily disposed at times, and as my pleasures were, to say the least, undignified— and I was not only well-known and highly considered, but growing towards the elderly man, this incoherency of my life was daily growing more unwelcome. It was on this side that my new power tempted me until I fell in slavery. I had but to drink the cup, to doff at once the body of the noted professor, and to assume like a thick cloak that of Edward Hyde. I smiled at the notion. It seemed to me at the time to be humorous, and I made my preparations with the most studious care. I took and furnished that house in Soho, to which Hyde was tracked by the police, and engaged as a housekeeper, a creature whom I knew to be silent and unscrupulous. On the other side, I announced to my servants that a Mr. Hyde, whom I described, was to have full liberty and power about my house in the square, and to parry mishaps, I even called and made myself a familiar object in my second character. I next drew up that will to which you so much objected, "'so that if anything befell me in the person of Dr. Jekyll, "'I could enter on that of Edward Hyde without pecuniary loss. "'And thus fortified, as I supposed on every side, "'I began to profit by the strange immunities of my position. "'Men have before hired bravos to transact their crimes, "'while their own person and reputation sat under shelter. "'I was the first that ever did so for his pleasures. "'I was the first that could plod in the public eye "'with a load of genial respectability "'and in a moment, like a schoolboy, "'strip off these lendings "'and spring headlong into the sea of liberty. "'But for me, in my impenetrable mantle, "'the safety was complete. "'Think of it. "'I did not even exist. "'Let me but escape into my laboratory door. "'Give me a second to mix and swallow the draft "'that I had always standing ready, "'and whatever he had done, "'Edward Hyde would pass away "'like the stain of breath upon a mirror. "'And there in his stead... Quietly at home, trimming the midnight lamp in his study, a man who could afford to laugh at suspicion would be Henry Jekyll. The pleasures which I made haste to seek in my disguise were, as I have said, undignified. I would scarce use a harder term, but in the hands of Edward Hyde they soon began to turn toward the monstrous. When I would come back from these excursions I was often plunged into a kind of wonder at my vicarious depravity. This familiar that I called out of my own soul and sent forth alone to do his good pleasure was a being inherently malign and villainous, his every act and thought centered on self, drinking pleasure with bestial avidity from any degree of torture to another, relentless like a man of stone. Henry Jekyll stood at times aghast before the acts of Edward Hyde, but the situation was apart from ordinary laws and insidiously relaxed the grasp of conscience. It was Hyde, after all, and Hyde alone that was guilty. Jekyll was no worse. He woke again to his good qualities seemingly unimpaired. He would even make haste, where it was possible, to undo the evil done by Hyde. And thus his conscience slumbered. Into the details of the infamy at which I thus connived, for even now I can scarce grant that I committed it, I have no design of entering." I mean, but to point out the warnings and the successive steps with which my chastisement approached. I met with one accident, which, as it brought of no consequence, I shall no more than mention. As an act of cruelty to a child aroused against me, the anger of a passer-by, whom I recognized the other day in the person of your kinsman, the doctor and the child's family joined him. There were moments when I feared for my life, and at last, in order to pacify their too just resentment, Edward Hyde had to bring them to the door. "'and pay them in a check drawn in the name of Henry Jekyll. "'But this danger was easily eliminated from the future "'by opening account at another bank "'in the name of Edward Hyde himself, "'and when, by slipping my own hand backward, "'I had supplied my double with a signature, "'I thought I sat beyond the reach of fate. "'Some two months before the murder of Sir Danvers, "'I had been out for one of my adventures, "'had returned at a late hour, "'and woke the next day in bed with somewhat odd sensations.' It was in vain I looked about me. In vain I saw the decent furniture and tall proportions of my room in the square. In vain that I recognized the pattern of the bed curtains and the design of the mahogany frame. Something still kept insisting that I was not where I was, that I had not wakened where I seemed to be, but in the little room in Soho where I was accustomed to sleep in the body of Edward Hyde. I smiled to myself and in my psychological way began lazily to inquire into the elements of this illusion, occasionally, even as I did so, dropping back into a comfortable morning doze. I was still so engaged when, in one of my more wakeful moments, my eyes fell upon my hand. Now the hand of Henry Jekyll, as you have often remarked, was professional in shape and size. It was large, firm, white, and comely. But the hand which I now saw clearly enough in the yellow light of a mid-London morning lying half shut on the bedclothes, was lean, corded, knuckly, of a dusky pallor, and thickly shaded with a swart growth of hair. It was the hand of Edward Hyde. I must have stared upon it for near half a minute, sunk as I was in the mere stupidity of wonder before terror woke up in my breast as sudden and startling as the crash of cymbals, and bounding from my bed I rushed to the mirror. At the sight that met my eyes, my blood was changed into something exquisitely thin and icy. Yes, I had gone to bed, Henry Jekyll. I had awakened Edward Hyde. How is this to be explained? I asked myself. And then with another bound of terror, how is it to be remedied? It was well on in the morning. The servants were up. All my drugs were in the cabinet, a long journey down two pairs of stairs, through the back passage, across the open court, and through the anatomical theater from where I was then standing horror-struck. It might indeed be possible to cover my face, but of what use was that when I was unable to conceal the alteration in my stature? And then, with an overpowering sweetness of relief, it came back upon my mind that the servants were already used to the coming and going of my second self. I had soon dressed as well as I was able in clothes of my own size, had soon passed through the house where Bradshaw stared and drew back at seeing Mr. Hyde at such an hour and in such a strange array, and ten minutes later Dr. Jekyll had returned to his own shape and was sitting down with a darkened brow to make a feint of breakfasting. Small indeed was my appetite. This inexplicable incident, this reversal of my previous experience, seemed like the Babylonian finger on the wall to be spelling out the letters of my judgment, and I began to reflect more seriously than ever before on the issues and possibilities of my double existence. That part of me which I had the power of projecting had lately been much exercised and nourished. It had seemed to me of late as though the body of Edward Hyde had grown in stature, as though, when I wore that form, I were conscious of a more generous tide of blood, and I began to spy a danger that, if this were much prolonged, The balance of my nature might be permanently overthrown, the power of voluntary change be forfeited, and the character of Edward Hyde become irrevocably mine. The power of the drug had not always been equally displayed. Once, very early in my career, it had totally failed me, and since then I had been obliged on more than one occasion to double, and once with infinite risk of death, to treble the amount— and these rare uncertainties had cast hitherto the sole shadow on my contentment. Now, however, and in the light of that morning's accident, I was led to remark that, whereas in the beginning the difficulty had been to throw off the body of Jekyll, it had of late gradually but decidedly transferred itself to the other side. All things, therefore, seemed to point at this, that I was slowly losing hold of my original and better self, and becoming slowly incorporated with my second and worse. Between these two I now felt I had to choose. My two natures had memory in common, but all other faculties were most unequally shared between them. Jekyll, who was composite, now with the most sensitive apprehensions, now with a greedy gusto, projected and shared in the pleasures and adventures of Hyde. But Hyde was indifferent to Jekyll or but remembered him as the mountain bandit remembers the cavern in which he conceals himself from pursuit. Jekyll had more than a father's interest. Hyde had more than a son's indifference. To cast in my lot with Jekyll was to die to those appetites which I had long secretly indulged and had of late began to pamper. To cast it in with Hyde was to die to a thousand interests and aspirations, and to become, at a blow and forever despised, and friendless. The bargain might appear unequal, but there was still another consideration in the scales. For while Jekyll would suffer smartly in the fires of abstinence, Hyde would be not even conscious of all that he had lost. Strange as my circumstances were, the terms of this debate are as old and commonplace as man. Much the same inducements and alarms cast the die for any tempted and trembling sinner and it fell out with me as it falls with so vast a majority of my fellows that I chose the better part and was found wanting in the strength to keep to it. Yes, I preferred the elderly and discontented doctor, surrounded by friends and cherishing honest hopes, and bade a resolute farewell to the liberty, the comparative youth, the light step, leaping impulses and secret pleasures that I had enjoyed in the disguise of Hyde. I made this choice perhaps with some unconscious reservation, for I neither gave up the house in Soho nor destroyed the clothes of Edward Hyde, which still lay ready in my cabinet. For two months, however, I was true to my determination. For two months I led a life of such severity as I had never before attained to, and enjoyed the compensations of an approving conscience. But time began at last to obliterate the freshness of my alarm. The praises of conscience began to grow into a thing, of course, I began to be tortured with throes and longings as of Hyde struggling after freedom, and at last, in an hour of moral weakness, I once again compounded and swallowed the transforming draught. I do not suppose that when a drunkard reasons with himself upon his vice, he is once out of five hundred times affected by the dangers that he runs through his brutish physical insensibility. Neither had I, long as I had considered my position made enough allowance for the complete moral insensibility and insensate readiness to evil which were the leading characters of Edward Hyde. Yet it was by these that I was punished. My devil had been long caged. He came out roaring. I was conscious, even when I took the draft, of a more unbridled, a more furious propensity to ill. It must have been this, I suppose, that stirred in my soul that tempest of impatience with which I listened to the civilities of my unhappy victim. I declare, at least before God, no man morally sane could have been guilty of that crime upon so pitiful a provocation, and that I struck in no more reasonable spirit than that in which a sick child may break a plaything." But I had voluntarily stripped myself of all those balancing instincts by which even the worst of us continues to walk with some degree of steadiness among temptations, and in my case to be tempted however slightly was to fall. Instantly the spirit of hell awoke in me enraged. With a transport of glee, I mauled the unresisting body, tasting delight from every blow, and it was not till weariness had begun to succeed that I was suddenly, in the top fit of my delirium, struck through the heart by a cold thrill of terror. A mist dispersed. I saw my life to be forfeit, and fled from the scene of these excesses, at once glorying and trembling, my lust of evil gratified and stimulated. My love of life screwed to the topmost peg. I ran to the house in Soho, and, to make assurance doubly sure, destroyed my papers. Thence I set out through the lamplit streets, in the same divided ecstasy of mind gloating on my crime, light-headedly devising others in the future, and yet still hastening and still hearkening in my wake for the steps of the Avenger. Hyde had a song upon his lips as he compounded the draft, and as he drank it pledged the dead man. The pangs of transformation had not done tearing him, before Henry Jekyll, with streaming tears of gratitude and remorse, had fallen upon his knees and lifted his clasped hands to God. The veil of self-indulgence was rent from head to foot. I saw my life as a whole. I followed it up from the days of childhood when I had walked with my father's hand and through the self-denying toils of my professional life to arrive again and again with the same sense of unreality at the damned horrors of the evening. I could have screamed aloud, I sought with tears and prayers to smother down the crowd of hideous images and sounds with which my memory swarmed against me, and still, between the petitions, the ugly face of my iniquity stared into my soul. As the acuteness of this remorse began to die away, it was succeeded by the sense of joy. The problem of my conduct was solved. hide was thenceforth impossible. Whether I would or not, I was now confined to the better part of my existence— And oh, how I rejoiced to think of it, with what willing humility I embraced anew the restrictions of natural life, with what sincere renunciation I locked the door by which I had so often gone and come and ground the key under my heel. The next day came the news that the murder had been overlooked, that the guilt of Hyde was patent to the world, and that the victim was a man high in public estimation. It was not only a crime, it had been a tragic folly. I think I was glad to know it. I think I was glad to have my better impulses thus buttressed and guarded by the terrors of the scaffold. Jekyll was now my city of refuge. Let but Hyde peep out an instant, and the hands of all men would be raised to take and slay him. I resolved in my future conduct to redeem the past, and I can say with honesty that my resolve was fruitful of some good. You know yourself how earnestly in the last months of the year I labored to relieve suffering. You know that much was done for others, and that the days passed quietly, almost happily for myself. Nor can I truly say that I wearied of this beneficent and innocent life. I think instead that I daily enjoyed it more completely, but I was still cursed with my duality of purpose, and as the first edge of my penitence wore off, the lower side of me, so long indulged, so recently chained down, began to growl for license. Not that I dreamed of resuscitating Hyde. The bare idea of that would startle me to frenzy. No, it was in my own person that I was once more tempted to trifle with my conscience, and it was as an ordinary secret sinner that I at last fell before the assaults of temptation. There comes an end to all things. The most capacious measure is filled at last, and this brief condescension to my evil finally destroyed the balance of my soul. And yet I was not alarmed. The fall seemed natural— like a return to the old days before I had made my discovery. It was a fine, clear January day, wet underfoot where the frost had melted but cloudless overhead, and the Regent's park was full of winter chirrupings and sweet with spring odors. I sat in the sun on a bench, the animal within me licking the chops of memory, the spiritual side a little drowsed, promising subsequent penitence, but not yet moved to begin. After all, I reflected, I was like my neighbor's, And then I smiled, comparing myself with other men, comparing my active goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect, and at the very moment of that vainglorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea and the most deadly shuddering. These passed away and left me faint, and then, as in its turn faintness subsided, I began to be aware of a change in the temper of my thoughts, a greater boldness, a contempt of danger, a solution of the bonds of obligation. I looked down. My clothes hung formlessly on my shrunken limbs. The hand that lay on my knee was corded and hairy. I was once more Edward Hyde. A moment before I had been safe of all men's respect, wealthy, beloved, the cloth laying for me in the dining room at home, and now I was the common quarry of mankind, hunted, houseless, a known murderer, thrall to the gallows. "'My reason wavered, but it did not fail me utterly. "'I have more than once observed that in my second character "'my faculties seem sharpened to a "'and my spirits more tensely elastic. "'Thus it came about that, where Jekyll perhaps might have succumbed, "'Hyde rose to the importance of the moment. "'My drugs were in one of the presses of my cabinet. "'How was I to reach them? "'That was the problem that, crushing my temples in my hands, "'I set myself to solve. "'The laboratory door I had closed.' If I sought to enter by the house, my own servants would consign me to the gallows. I saw I must employ another hand, and thought of Lanyon. was he to be reached? How persuaded? Supposing that I escaped capture in the streets, how was I to make my way into his presence? And how should I, an unknown and displeasing visitor, prevail on the famous physician to rifle the study of his colleague Dr. Jekyll? Then I remembered that of my original character. One part remained to me. I could write in my own hand, and once I had conceived that kindling spark, the way that I must follow became lighted out from end to end. Thereupon I arranged my clothes as best I could, and, summoning a passing hansom, drove to a hotel in Portland Street, the name of which I chanced to remember. In my appearance, which was indeed comical enough, however tragic of fate these garments covered, the driver could not conceal his mirth. I gnashed my teeth upon him with a gust of devilish fury, and the smile withered from his face, happily for him, yet more happily for myself, for in another instant I had certainly dragged him from his perch. At the inn, as I entered, I looked about me with so black a countenance as made the attendants tremble. Not a look did they exchange in my presence, but obsequiously took my orders, led me to a private room, and brought me wherewithal to write. Hyde, in danger of his life, was a creature new to me, "'shaken with inordinate anger, "'strung to the pitch of murder, "'lusting to inflict pain. "'Yet the creature was astute, "'mastered his fury with a great effort of the will, "'composed his two important letters, "'one to Lanyon and one to Poole, "'and that he might receive actual evidence "'of their being posted, "'sent them out with directions "'that they should be registered. "'Thenceforward he sat all day "'over the fire in the private room, "'gnawing his nails. "'There he dined, sitting alone with his fears.' the waiter visibly quailing before his eye, and thence, when the night was fully come, he set forth in the corner of a closed cab and was driven to and fro about the streets of the city. He, I say, I cannot say I. That child of hell had nothing human, nothing lived in him but fear and hatred, and when at last, thinking the driver had begun to grow suspicious, he discharged the cab and ventured on foot, attired in his misfitting clothes, an object marked out for observation, into the midst of the nocturnal passengers, these two base passions raged within him like a tempest. He walked fast, hunted by his fears, chattering to himself, skulking through the less frequented thoroughfares, counting the minutes that still divided him from midnight. Once a woman spoke to him, offering, I think, a box of lights. He smote her in the face, and she fled. When I came to myself at Lanyon's, The horror of my old friend perhaps affected me somewhat. I do not know. It was at least but a drop in the sea to the abhorrence with which I looked back upon these hours. A change had come over me. It was no longer the fear of the gallows. It was the horror of being Hyde that racked me. I received Lanyon's condemnation partly in a dream. It was partly in a dream that I came home to my own house and got into bed. I slept, after the prostration of the day, with a stringent and profound slumber which not even the nightmares that wrung me could avail to break. I awoke in the morning, shaken, weakened, but refreshed. I still hated and feared the thought of the brute that slept within me, and I had not, of course, forgotten the appalling dangers of the day before. But I was once more at home, in my own house and close to my drugs, and gratitude for my escapes. shone so strong in my soul that it almost rivaled the brightness of hope. I was stepping leisurely across the court after breakfast, drinking the chill of the air with pleasure, when I was seized again with those indescribable sensations that heralded the change, and I had but the time to gain the shelter of my cabinet before I was once again raging and freezing with the passions of Hyde. It took on this occasion a double dose to recall me to myself, and alas, six hours after— As I sat looking sadly in the fire, the pangs returned, and the drug had to be re-administered. In short, from that day forth, it seemed only by a great effort as of gymnastics, and only under the immediate stimulation of the drug, that I was able to wear the countenance of Jekyll. At all hours of the day and night, I would be taken with a premonitory shudder. Above all, if I slept, or even dozed for a moment in my chair, it was always as high that I awakened, under the strain of this continually impending doom, and by the sleeplessness to which I now condemned myself. I, even beyond what I had thought possible to man, I became, in my own person, a creature eaten up and emptied by fever, languidly weak both in body and mind, and solely occupied by one thought, the horror of my other self. But when I slept, or when the virtue of the medicine wore off, I would leap almost without transition, for the pangs of transformation grew daily less marked, into the possession of a fancy brimming with images of terror, a soul boiling with causeless hatreds and a body that seemed not strong enough to contain the raging energies of life. The powers of Hyde seemed to have grown with the sickliness of Jekyll, and certainly the hate that now divided them was equal on each side. With Jekyll it was a thing of vital instinct— He had now seen the full deformity of that creature that shared with him some of the phenomena of consciousness, and was co-heir with him to death, and beyond these links of community, which in themselves made the most poignant part of his distress, he thought of Hyde, for all his energy of life, as of something not only hellish but inorganic. This was the shocking thing, that the slime of the pit seemed to utter cries and voices, that the amorphous dust gesticulated and sinned that what was dead and had no shape should usurp the offices of life. And this again, that that insurgent horror was knit to him closer than a wife, closer than an eye, lay caged in his flesh, where he heard it mutter and felt it struggle to be born, and at every hour of weakness and in the confidence of slumber prevailed against him and deposed him out of life. The hatred of Hyde for Jekyll was of a different order, his terror of the gallows drove him continually to commit temporary suicide and return to his subordinate station of a part instead of a person. But he loathed the necessity, he loathed the despondency into which Jekyll was now fallen, and he resented the dislike with which he was himself regarded. Hence the ape-like tricks that he would play me, scrawling in my own hand blasphemies on the pages of my books, burning the letters and destroying the portrait of my father, And indeed, had it not been for his fear of death, he would long ago have ruined himself in order to involve me in the ruin. But his love of life is wonderful. I go further. I, who sicken and freeze at the mere thought of him, when I recall the objection and passion of this attachment, and when I know how he fears my power to cut him off by suicide, I find it in my heart to pity him. It is... Useless, and the time awfully fails me to prolong this description. No one has ever suffered such torments, let that suffice. And yet, even to these, habit brought no, not alleviation, but a certain callousness of soul, a certain acquiescence of despair. And my punishment might have gone on for years, but for the last calamity which has now fallen and which has finally severed me from my own face and nature. My provision of the salt which had never been renewed since the date of the first experiment began to run low. I sent out for a fresh supply and mixed the draught. The ebullition followed, and the first change of colour. Not the second. I drank it, and it was without efficacy. You will learn from Poole how I have had London ransacked. It was in vain. And I am now persuaded that my first supply was impure and that it was that unknown impurity which lent efficacy to the draft. About a week has passed, and I am now finishing this statement under the influence of the last of the old powders. This, then, is the last time, short of a miracle, that Henry Jekyll can think his own thoughts, or see his own face, now how sadly altered, in the glass. Nor must I delay too long to bring my writing to an end, For if my narrative has hitherto escaped destruction, it has been by a combination of great prudence and great good luck. Should the throes of change take me in the act of writing it, Hyde will tear it in pieces. But if some time shall have elapsed after I have laid it by, his wonderful selfishness and circumscription to the moment will probably save it once again from the action of his ape-like spite. And indeed... The doom that is closing on us both has already changed and crushed him. Half an hour from now, when I shall again and forever re that hated personality, I know how I shall sit, shuddering and weeping in my chair, or continue, with the most strained and fear struck ecstasy of lightning, to pace up and down this room, my last earthly refuge, and give ear to every sound of menace. Will Hyde die upon the scaffold? or will he find courage to release himself at the last moment? God knows. I am careless. This is my true hour of death, and what is to follow concerns another than myself. Here then, as I lay down the pen and proceed to seal up my confession, I bring the life of that unhappy Henry Jekyll to an end. And that is the end of The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. I hope you enjoyed it. Coming at the end of the month, just before New Year, the next episode of The Moonstone drops in the $10 tier Patreon feed, and then we start a new year with new episodes and shorter-form stories. I'm really excited about the stuff I've got coming up this year and the plans I've made, and I can't wait to bring it all to you. Thank you to all my patrons who help keep the lights on here at WTP Inc. LLC, and I'm very grateful for all of you. Please continue wearing a mask whether you're triple-tapped or not. Please get the booster if you're fully vaxxed. And get vaxxed if you're just a stupid dimwit who doesn't care about ending the pandemic, you selfish asshole. You know who you are. Punch racists in the face. They're everywhere and they don't deserve any better. And always remember that the most important words a person can say are, I will do better. And the most important step a person can take is always the next one. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next year.